Here's Your Red Flag is intended for mature audiences only. Many, if not most, of our episodes will include topics such as psychological, emotional, and physical abuse, and detailed narcissistic and toxic behaviors. We are not professional therapists. If you are in need of professional help, please contact the appropriate authorities. Some names have been changed for anonymity purposes. The opinions expressed by the guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lisa or myself. You can find additional information about this podcast in the show notes, as well as on our website, heresyourredflag.com. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I flew up to the mirror. Well, there was nothing that I seen. Welcome back to Here's Your Red Flag. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Tony. I'm excited about today's episode. How about you? Me too. Me too. This is going to be a a real good one. So on today's episode, we are going to discuss the five main types of narcissists. For Lisa and I, it has been so beneficial, to say the least, learning about narcissism so that, frankly, we can learn to better identify narcissistic people who cross our paths and therefore strengthen our boundaries when narcissists come around. Educating ourselves gives us strength. There are several types of narcissists detailed in the research. One article listed 11 types, and I think there was even one I saw that had 15 types of narcissists. But for ease of our discussion today, we are going to narrow it down to the five main specific types, which are overt, covert, antagonistic, communal, and malignant. As a mental health disorder, there's only one diagnosis, narcissism. Lisa will now explain the more clinical features of narcissism, and then we are going to talk about the five main types, and we have come up with a really neat way to illustrate each type, so stay tuned. All right. When you look at narcissism as a trait in terms of how it affects your day-to-day life and ability to form relationships, there are two types of narcissists. One is called adaptive or helpful narcissism, and these are aspects of personality that can actually be helpful like having a high self-confidence or self-esteem, self-reliance, and the ability to celebrate yourself. This is healthy narcissism, where the person has a sense of belonging and their feelings are usually in line with reality. Maladaptive or unhelpful narcissism is connected to traits that don't serve a person and can negatively impact how they relate to themselves and others. Those with maladaptive narcissism lack empathy, display entitlement, aggression, even domination, and they have the tendency to manipulate and take advantage of others. This would be associated with symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder. When we refer to narcissism on our podcast, we are referring to the maladaptive narcissism. Mental health professionals generally use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth edition. This is called the DSM-5. To diagnose narcissistic personality disorder called NPD, and other mental health conditions. There actually are six different assessments that licensed practitioners can use to assess for personality disorders, including narcissism. However, it is very hard to diagnose. It's a disorder that is often accompanied by depression, 
paranoia, and antisocial qualities. So a word of caution when researching, especially if you have a copy of the DSM-5 or anything similar, is be real careful not to self-diagnose yourself. (laughs) Chances are, if you're looking in the DSM-5 to find out what might be wrong with you, you're not a narcissist because you'll never find a narcissist looking in the DSM-5. That's good to know. Yeah. So we all, you know, will display moments of selfishness or even bragging. I know when we want to make posts or talk to each other about our kids' accomplishments, we kind of might walk away from those conversations thinking, oh, did I brag too much? But that very active self-reflection proves that, no, we're not narcissistic. We are just Mm -hmm. really proud of our kids and wanting to share our lives with each other. And so there's a little distinction there. Good to know. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people might be wondering what causes narcissism? Is it nature or nurture? And there's been a lot of research on this. And the research shows that it is probably a little bit of both. So we can be born with some unhealthy traits that hopefully with good parenting and good, you know, school and life experiences, it might include volunteerism or church, those might help mold us a little bit and kind of shave off those rough edges. But more than likely, the research agrees that parenting style is the most influential contributor to narcissism. So narcissists often have one of two types of parenting. The parents can be highly critical, very dismissive, uninterested in their children. And so these type of kids grow up and they feel what I call hyper vulnerable and very insignificant. They're like a snail or a turtle without a shell. So in order to compensate, they develop a superiority complex, which is actually just a fake shell. And they also develop an extreme case of self-reliance and independence. So on one hand, you know, self-reliance and independence is good, but taken to the extreme, it will eventually prevent people from being able to have intimate or close relationships. This type of narcissist will often create a fantasy as a substitute for reality. The other type of parent is overindulgent and they overly praise their child. They raise their kids to believe that they are superior and entitled and they're just the best at everything. And these are some of the hallmarks of narcissism. So just to recap, two types of parents, either highly critical and dismissive or on the other extreme, you know, Johnny or Sally can do no wrong. These are the kind of parents that swoop into the school when the the school calls and says, you know, Johnny or Sally did X, Y, Z. No, my child would never do that type of scenario. And so that's, you know, shaping future narcissists. Two things came to mind while you were talking about that. Have we talked about the importance of eye contact when you have your little baby and you're either breastfeeding or bottle feeding them? the vital importance of the eye contact during that. And all the way up until we've had cell phones or smartphones, that's something that, or maybe TVs have done a little damage as well, but a lot of people are looking at their phones instead of gazing at their babies. And Mm -hmm. there is a ton of research out there at how many neural pathways are formed and the bonding is established during that very special time, Mm -hmm. regardless of 
breastfeeding or bottle feeding. Mm -hmm. And that has gone by the wayside. And mm -hmm. I think we're really going to start seeing a lot of the effects that that causes on children that haven't developed those pathways and that bonding during mm -hmm. that vital time. And then the other thing that came to mind was Dr. Romani was on somebody else's podcast and she was talking about a way to develop empathy with your kids is reading stories with them like fairy tales or whatever or even if you watch Disney shows or other types of little shows with your kids stopping afterwards and saying how do you think that character felt when this happened and having a dialogue about what happened in the story so that the child can see the characters' perspectives, the different characters' perspectives and how they felt. Mm -hmm. So those two things came to mind. We really can help our children develop empathy by tuning into them. Yeah. And these are just two really great suggestions. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the bottle feeding, breastfeeding is not a suggestion. I think that's a must. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. For sure. And you know, to tag along with that, there was also at least one one research study that came about because veterinarians were starting to notice an influx of dogs specifically coming into clinics and they were exhibiting signs of depression. And so there's actually antidepressants for dogs and the spike in prescriptions for this. And the study found that much like you said, that people lack eye contact with their babies because they're on their phones when they're feeding them. The study found that people who were walking their dogs or taking them to the park were on their phones instead of oh, engaging gosh. with their dogs. Wow. So imagine if a little four-legged creature can feel insignificant and mm -hmm. then that turns into depression. Then, of course, our little humans that we're raising are going to feel the same thing. I just thought that was really interesting. So now when I see people walking their dogs and they're on their phone or for a walk in my neighborhood, their baby is in the stroller. They had their AirPods in and their phone propped up on their stroller watching something. I'm like, yeah. oh, it makes me so sad. I know. Oh, my so goodness. Sad. So young parents listening out there, put your phones down. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Wait till they know, go to bed. Wait till Check they your... go to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing is as important as those formative months and years. You can't get They're that back. Hugely important. That's when so many neural pathways are laid down. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's really important to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. For sure. So I wanted to talk before we get into the five types, I wanted to talk a little bit about narcissistic rage and why that comes about because it fits perfectly with the parenting styles that help create narcissists. So just imagine being raised your whole life, being told you're the best. No one can fill your shoes. You're always in the spotlight. And like I mentioned earlier, the school calls or the teacher calls with some news about Johnny or Sally and you totally dismiss it and continue to elevate your child. Then that child grows up to become an adult and they don't get a job that they want or they don't get the promotion they feel like they deserve, or they don't get the last pair of shoes on sale. Someone grabs them first. Just remember, you know, Tony's beautiful illustration of a narcissist is a perpetual four-year-old. And so a perpetual four-year-old who doesn't get the shoes that they want is going to throw a tantrum. And it can take on many forms. It could be all-out rage, yelling at the shoe store clerk or yelling at the boss or what have you. But it can also take on some more covert reactions that we'll talk about later. Then when the tantrum doesn't provide what they want, like the promotion or the job, 
then that turns to hate. Revenge, narcissists are great at taking revenge on people. Sometimes, especially in my case, it would look like the silent treatment. And then when the narcissist who had dismissive parents doesn't get what they want, then this also turns into narcissistic rage, but it looks more like overt violence. It could be abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, but these are more pointed at intimate partners. So a few things that might help us figure out how narcissism begins and what it looks like when those narcissistic needs aren't met. The DSM-5 lists nine key narcissistic traits. Number one, exaggerated feelings of superiority and self-importance, regular fantasies about personal power, intelligence, success, or attractiveness, a firm belief in personal specialness, a strong need for attention, praise, and admiration from other people, entitled behavior such as a desire for special treatment, a habit of using manipulation tactics. So in this trait, think of a con man, And the word con man is short for confidence man. People place their confidence or trust in these manipulative people only to discover they've been duped later on. The seventh trait of a narcissist is having low empathy or disinterest in the emotional needs of others, a tendency to envy others or assume others envy them, and finally, arrogance and scorn for others. To formally diagnose NPD, a mental health professional will look for the presence of at least five of these narcissistic traits. They also try to determine whether these traits appear in different contexts. So is this this happening at school and at work and at home? Mental health professionals will try to find out when these traits first started appearing. And finally, how these traits are affecting daily life and relationships. Speaking of therapists or mental health professionals, narcissists rarely go to therapy and probably never on their own accord if they do show up. Oftentimes, you'll find a narcissist in couples therapy if the partner has given an ultimatum, and the only narcissists who have any hope of developing healthy traits are those who are on the very low end of the narcissistic spectrum, and they also have to be willing to attend couples or group therapy for a very, very long time. So narcissism is something that never goes away, But people who are on the very low end of the spectrum can learn social skills and accountability and how to interact with, you know, those that they're close to. But the literature is showing that this is only really possible if narcissists commit to going to a group kind of like AA that meets regularly and there's a sense of accountability through that group. Wow, that's very interesting. It is. And it's a little bit hopeless sounding, you know, but hopefully through our podcast and things will help people either live with or live without, but either way, live peacefully. Yes. And, you know, that always comes back to the freedom we have within ourselves and educating ourselves and and finding our own strength to not be manipulated and controlled. Generally, a narcissist is not going to want to stay with somebody that is educating themselves and finding their own voice. So mm-hmm. we hope that for our listeners and our listeners, friends and family, that they can find that within themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think as strong individuals, strong women, that we are attractive anymore to mm-hmm. 
narcissist. You know, there might be an, an initial attraction, maybe there's something in common or a physical attraction. But once the narcissist starts trying to dig their little claws into us, they'll find that we can't be manipulated. Exactly. Yeah. So what's in store for today? For today's episode, we thought it might be interesting and helpful to give examples of characters from the movies, TV, or literature to illustrate each of the five main types of narcissism. Again, those being overt, covert, antagonistic, communal, and malignant narcissism. So the first one we're going to talk about is the overt, also known as grandiose narcissism. And this may be what most people are familiar with when they think about narcissists. These are the ones carrying the big billboard around, I'm a narcissist, it's all flashing up, lighting, and there's just really no doubt. You know, you get the picture the moment they walk into a room, all eyes on them, they seek all the attention, they take up all the air in the room. These are the proud walking and quacking ducks of narcissism. They want control, power, and domination. These are definitely your politicians and CEOs. An overt or grandiose narcissist comes across as extroverted, displaying superiority and entitlement over others. They believe they are better than others and should be seen as more special and receive special treatment all the time. They are egomaniacs. Rules that apply to everybody else in society don't apply to them. They seem to have very high self-esteem when you first meet them. And you can be easily fooled into thinking, these are really neat, great, well-adjusted people. I really like him and he or she really likes me. But it's just a mask. Eventually, the mask slips and you get to see them better. And you will start to see that they exploit others for self-gain. And you even see signs of hostility and aggression when they're challenged or if you kind of start poking at some of the things that they say, if you dare argue with them on something that they're wrong about. So while they seem to have high self-esteem, they're actually very deeply insecure. They strongly desire admiration and expect to be recognized as superior, even if they don't have the achievements to deserve it. They tend to exaggerate their achievements and talents they are braggadocious. They exploit others without shame or guilt and do not recognize or care about the needs of others. They talk over other people, monopolizing conversations and meetings. When you're around them, you feel unheard and devalued in their presence. Everyone in their sphere is just a mirror, really, for them to gaze upon themselves. So Lisa and I have chosen fictional characters from the movies, TV, and literature to exemplify the five types of narcissism we're covering today. And to add an extra layer of fun, we've kept our choices a secret from each other until now. So this should be a mm -hmm. lot of fun. So Lisa, you get to go first. Which fictional character did you choose to exemplify the overt or grandiose narcissist? Drum roll. Oh, this was so hard, so hard. But... Was what? it hard to choose or because there's so many? What was hard about it? Hard to choose. Yes. Yeah. Too many choices. I just couldn't help myself. The nerdy English teacher in me is going <laughs> to shine through with a couple of my choices. And the first one I chose is Jay Gatsby from The Great Gatsby. Ooh, that's a good one. Yes. Yes. Perfect. He's got the mansion. He's got the 
tux. He's got the cars. He's, you know, the parties. It's all look at me, look at me, look at me. And he's just, he's a con. He's just, mm. oh. Of course, I love the Robert Redford. Well, I love, I love the book. But the Robert Redford film is amazing. And mm. the Leonardo DiCaprio more recent version is just beautifully done. Beautifully wow. done. And so when I think of grandiose narcissist, I think of Jay Gatsby. Who did you choose? So my choice was from Top Gun, <gasps> Maverick. Oh! <laughs> I was yeah. for sure you were going to choose that because oh. that movie just came out. The sequel to that yeah. movie just came out. That's a great pick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is good. So I went way into a lot of the features. And he's gorgeous. Just saying. He is very attractive and really pulls that role off quite well. Mm-hmm. So the features I saw or wrote down about Maverick, Tom Cruise's character, he is a showboat. He is a big show off. The way he flies is very unsafe and daring and can be quite potentially costly for the Navy. So mm-hmm. not good. Mm-hmm. Of course, the middle-aged mom person that I am, the way he uses women, Mm. he and his friends have that cutesy little act where they sing this song to get the attention of a woman that Mm -hmm. he wants to be sexual with. And that's great for entertainment and for the Mm -hmm. movies and, you know, who didn't smile and love that scene. But in reality, it's not really that great. It's not special for the woman in the long run because she's totally objectified. Yep. Well, as his name is Maverick, he does everything on his own. He makes his own decisions, and it's oftentimes to the detriment of other people, their opinions, their feelings, and their lives. He ignores orders, which is life-threatening, and his actions are extremely costly for the Navy, for the taxpayers. But he doesn't see that because he's completely entitled. Mm Mm-hmm. He antagonizes command wherever possible. When he does those dangerous flyovers, you're not supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. When he is flying with his friend, Goose, I think he's called his Rio. He leaves him in utter states of terror oftentimes. And I guess they fly upside down and shoot the bird to the enemy. Mm -hmm. And that's quite crazy and dangerous. Mm -hmm. But it's all for him to showboat. Mm -hmm. And... Although it's unintentional, he ends up killing his friend and it was dangerous flying. And while he does actually show remorse for his friend, it can look like he feels remorse more for himself Mm -hmm. than what true remorse would be for Mm -hmm. an authentic person who is not narcissistic. Mm -hmm. To me, it seemed like that remorse kind of emboldened him to to continue on rather than be a lesson true remorse is a lesson and Mm. we do an about face right right the way he strings along women that very intelligent woman that was in the first movie charlie he never commits to her for some weird reason she's attracted to him i think selfishly she is attracted to him from the get-go because she wants information about a top secret mission that he had been on but she falls in love with him and we could probably examine her character and why she fell for him. I am totally watching that tonight. 
Oh, that'd be good. Yeah, I want to watch it through. I hadn't considered that really. Oh, it's been a long time since I've seen the first one. So I'm going to totally watch that. Yeah, watch it from her perspective. Yes, from hers. Give us a report. (laughs) Totally doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he is the quintessential grandiose narcissist in that relationship. He keeps her guessing. He keeps the relationship on unequal footing. She never knows where the relationship stands because he doesn't open up to her. He devalues and discards her. And sadly, she comes back for more. And at the end of the movie, Mm. she should have moved on to her big assignment that she or her big promotion that she received and she doesn't she stays there with him Mm. yeah oftentimes with this type of narcissist we put our plan our own plans and goals Mm. on hold Mm. and when the Mm. second movie came out which was what 20 years later or Mm -hmm. she's not in the picture anymore (laughs) yeah so how'd that work out for you girl hopefully she learned pretty quick and Mm -hmm. got the heck out of dodge yeah. With that guy. Because that guy is not a well adjusted man for any woman to have a long term healthy relationship with. Mm-mm. He's good looking, mm-hmm. but it stops there. And yeah. you cannot base your life on someone that checks off the superficial boxes, as we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. So that's why Maverick is my grandiose narcissist choice. Mm-hmm. You know, something else is. If we were to list Maverick's traits and credentials, Mm. right, and his credentials in the Navy and his all like his resume type thing, right, he would check all the boxes. Yeah. Right. But it's maybe we could, you know, dig deeper at some point on what is your list of the ideal partner. But yeah, so he would on the outside, his resume is really good. But those are just words on paper. You know, how does he treat others is the question to ask when asking yourself, you know, is this person a narcissist? How do they how do they treat others? Goodness, that's a really that's a really good point. You know, we're talking about getting in touch with your values, Mm -hmm. your goals, your needs. Mm -hmm. So he checks all these boxes superficially or professionally. But I mean, I wouldn't say he would match my value of family, Mm -mm. you know, or integrity. Mm -hmm. And I think that is why it is so important to do that values work, which we are going to do an episode on, which should be helpful for anybody that hasn't done that. Mm -hmm. And do you want the arm candy? Or do you want to feel good? Mm hmm. And do you want to have a life of feeling good with an authentic, true, genuine partner? Mm -hmm. And if I was with a guy like Maverick, I would not feel good about myself. He'd be cute to have on my arm, Mm -hmm. but I'd always be wondering, is he cheating on me? He's so busy with work. I take a back seat. I'm like third, fourth, fifth place for Mm him. Mm -hmm. I did actually a couple guys like that. And I personally don't like to be in that position. Mm Mm-hmm. It is a very lonely relationship. It is. It is. When I'm committed to someone, that's a value for me. And I want them to share that same value. So, yay, you can fly a multi-million dollar jet, but you make me feel like crap. Mm-hmm. Literally, you make me feel like, yes, I feel like crap, but you are intentionally making me feel like that. Mm-hmm. And they do. They cannot let anyone else have the air in the room. And these people ultimately devalue and discard you and Hoover, et cetera. Repeat their cycle again. Yeah. Mm. 
The second type of narcissist we will discuss is the covert narcissist. Some signs of covert narcissism are a high sensitivity to criticism. Covert narcissism typically involves insecurity and an easily damaged sense of self-esteem. Covert narcissists are also passive-aggressive. They might have a tendency to put themselves down. They often play the victim. They might have a shy or withdrawn nature. They're not necessarily the life of the party, but they are pretty charismatic one-on-one. They often have grandiose fantasies or beliefs about themselves, such as, I'm the only one who can blah, 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 or I'm an expert in this certain field. Sadly, the covert narcissist actually does experience feelings of depression, anxiety, and emptiness. They have a tendency to hold grudges. They are very envious. They believe that they have a right to something that belongs to someone else. And they also objectify people that they should love. Tony, which fictional character did you choose as a covert narcissist? Okay, so drumroll. My covert narcissist that I chose is Walter White from Breaking Bad. Yeah. Did you see that yeah. series? Yes, I did. So that was the series that was on AMC channel, mm-hmm. I believe. So this is a show about a man who gets lung cancer, even though he didn't smoke. He was a chemistry teacher. And I would describe him as living a life of quiet desperation. And he finds out he has cancer and it's going to be very costly for the treatment. And through a comedy of errors, figures out that making meth (laughs) should be a really good way to make money Mm -hmm. to help him pay for his cancer treatments. Mm -hmm. And then all the seasons ensue from there. It is a crazy series. Mm -hmm. So he's insanely intelligent. He's nothing against high school chemistry teachers, yet he has resigned himself to be a high school chemistry teacher, which is great if you're, you know, feeling fulfilled in that. But it is quite obvious that he does not feel that he is living up to his brilliance. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he could have been quite successful. He had co-founded a company with his best friend from college. And from my recollection, due to some pride, he ended up cashing out of his stock option with the company he had started with his friend for, I think it was a measly $5,000. And later comes to find out that his shares would be worth hundreds of millions of dollars if he had stayed and remained a partner. To make matters worse, the woman that he had been dating while he was working at that company, he ended up breaking up with her and then she married the partner. So he has more narcissistic injury because she chose the other guy. Mm -hmm. And now they are very successful doing wonderful things around the world with the business. Mm -hmm. And as I said, he became a high school chemistry teacher and a bunch of high school kids are not necessarily interested in chemistry. And maybe you have two or three students per class that are So that can't be overly satisfying to have lots of yawning and flirting teenagers in your classroom while Mm -hmm. you're teaching. It's obviously he's very passionate about chemistry. Interestingly, he married a much younger woman when he did get married. And like that could be a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. Narcissists can choose younger people as their spouses or as their partners because maybe they're easier to manipulate. Mm-hmm. because they don't have the world experience. But again, that the woman he did marry is very savvy. And mm-hmm. you know, eventually that's made very clear in, throughout the show. 
when he's dealing with his brother-in-law, you can just see the wheels turning in Walter's brain. This brother-in-law is just truly a grandiose narcissist and makes a lot of fun of Walter throughout. And you can just see Walter's, the wheels in his head turning about how this guy makes him so angry and frustrated. And he originally goes into the meth business, as I said, to make money to pay for his cancer treatment. But it grows very quickly into an obsession for him. He becomes very obsessed with the power he acquires, not even the money anymore. It's not even about the money, but the power and awe that he thinks he inspires in those that he conducts business with. And it really proves to be to the detriment of everything he ever valued. He loses everything. He loses his family and he loses his life. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about him, he is not a grandiose narcissist. He, it's like he's still waters. And as they say about still waters, still waters run deep. And I think that's what a lot of covert narcissists are. You know, they they look still on the surface, mm -hmm. but there's so much brewing underneath. Mm -hmm. And Walter is very much a great example of still waters run deep. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. Yeah. So that's yeah. mine. I can't wait to hear yours. Who is your covert narcissist? Well... I actually had a tie for two. I can do one from literature or one from modern TV series. Do, do both. So my one from literature is Maxim de Winter from a novel called Rebecca. Oh, yes. And, and there's there's been a remake of that. I know there's a couple of movies out, but there's been a recent remake of that movie that people could go see on Netflix or something like that, right? There is. There's a remake on Netflix. And... If you want a true picture of the character of Max de Winter, I would recommend watching the original Rebecca film, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And this won Alfred Hitchcock his first Academy Award, and it stars Joan Fontaine and Laurence Olivier. So the character of Max de Winter would be considered a covert narcissist for a number of reasons. And if you've been following our podcast, you know that our early episodes referred to a person that we call number two. And so number two is, I think, is a covert narcissist. But Max de Winter was a very hard man. He was cruel, dismissive. He belittled the narrator. However, when she first meets him, she meets him because she's the, we never know her name. So she's just referred to as the narrator. She's working for this woman, this older woman, as like an assistant and they traveled together and the older woman was just a busybody gossip and they were staying in Monte Carlo and she said, Oh, look, there's Max de Winter. So long story short, Max de Winter is single. His first wife died under mysterious circumstances. So the young narrator of course is smitten by him. He's wealthy and good looking and famous. So they end up you know, spending some time together, but the whole time he's never nice to her ever. Yet he throws out these little breadcrumbs and she just devours them and, and just relishes in any little bit of attention that he might give to her. So yeah, he's just ugh, passive aggressive, just all the things. Yeah. And, and very much the victim, very shy and withdrawn, doesn't like a lot of people. And so he's very isolating once they do form a relationship and it moves very quickly. They spent a few days together in Monte Carlo. And when it came time for the narrator 
and her boss lady to move on to the next city, which was New York. He didn't want to see her go. And so he, I think the line is, marry me, you little fool. And she. How romantic. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Mm. So that's my pick for an older pick. And then then I think Ryan from The Office is a covert narcissist. I agree. I Mm. agree. Yes. Yeah. You know, he, what stands out to me, you know, Kelly has had her own issues, but he really strung her along Mm. and he's kind of cute in a nerdy way, but, you know, always dresses sharp and, you know, he's cute, can be a little charming, I guess. But the red flag that stood out to me is he's so entitled Mm. and he's, he's really disliked in the office and he just doesn't really have any friends. And so I think that's a, that's a red flag. That was certainly looking back, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, but looking back with number two, not a lot of friends. And right. that's very telling. Not that every person has to have a lot of friends. I don't have a lot of friends. I have a few close friends, but you but, look at how they relate with their friends. Yes. Right? Yes. And how they relate to others, even mm. the people that aren't their friends. You know, it's still friendly and or, or not for a narcissist, but yeah. So just that hallmark of how they treat others. It's very, yeah, very telling. Ryan looks, he looks at everybody with disdain. He mm-hmm. just knows he's better than everybody else. And he's not. <laughs> no, not at all. So I could not choose. So I had two. Well, I love that. I think Ryan's a great choice. Mm. Yeah. So the next type of narcissist that we are going to discuss is the antagonistic narcissist. According to some research, antagonistic narcissism is a subtype of overt narcissism. With this aspect of narcissism, the focus is on rivalry and competition. Some features of antagonistic narcissism include arrogance and the tendency to take advantage of others, Antagonistic narcissists are characterized by their maladaptive and aggressive behaviors. They often use others to get what they want, and they have no problem exploiting other people for their own gain. They are also highly competitive and always need to be the center of attention. Like all the other types, it is all about them. So, Lisa, who did you choose to illustrate antagonistic narcissism? <laughs> I chose Miranda Priestley from the uh, Prada. I had her. You Sorry. did? <laughs> but you you do her because I have an or. I really wanted to do Miranda, but I have another one that I am actually pretty excited about. He would be considered a little more obscure. So let's I would rather hear you do Miranda. Okay. I just jotted down a, a few notes from what I can remember. It's been a while, so uh, since I've seen the film, but I know what I'm doing after this. I'm watching some movies. Oh, yeah, um, baby. <laughs> so Miranda Priestly, she's always right. She's a diva. She has a very sharp tongue. She's cruel. No regard for others. Zero compassion. Zero empathy. And of course, the film, you know, there's a book too, Devil Wears Prada. But I kept thinking of the phrase, she has a real devil may care attitude. Mm. Anything yeah. else you want to add about? I have a whole paragraph. <laughs> Go for it. 
Go for it. Yes, I agree with everything that you said. And I may reemphasize what you said. She knows all and she is not open to hearing new ideas from people. She shoots down everybody's ideas and even further really attacks people's character for even bringing ideas to her about the magazine and projects for the magazine. She knows best about the magazine and everybody else is they're just buzzing flies, really, that she Mm -hmm. has to put up with, really. Mm hmm. She's completely paranoid about anybody dethroning her from her head position at the magazine. She devalues and discards people so easily. She doesn't care about anybody else's personal life and feels that she's so committed to the magazine and everybody else should be as well. And it doesn't matter about their families or personal lives. And what I thought was interesting is she, you know, when Andy comes to work there, she doesn't even attempt to remember Andy's name and calls her by the other assistant's name, which is so devaluing. She really puts people in their place. Yes, she really does. And there's a scene from the movie. I read the book years ago, so I don't know if the book and movie are exactly the same, but from the movie, at one point when Andy's just totally, you know, kind of sold herself out, kind of sold her soul to the devil and is starting to see the light that I am not living my life the way I want to live it. Miranda says to her, you are so much like me. And I think that's the light bulb moment for Andy where she goes, no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was Miranda using Andy as a mirror for herself, like narcissists do. And it was Andy saying, I'm breaking your mirror. You know, I am not a mirror to you. And it was beautiful that Mm -hmm. Andy came to her senses. Mm -hmm. It really is an interesting relationship of the dizzying cycle of narcissism. That's a good movie for that. Because Andy is a really well-adjusted girl coming in to that job. She's trying to gain experience. She wants to be a true journalist. And this job is not about her becoming a journalist. This job is about her buying into that brand of Mm -hmm. magazine that's similar to Vogue. And to be successful at that job, you have to buy into all of the superficial. And Andy completely sidelines her whole career track and becomes a part of that world for a little while, but finally gets back in touch with her values and her goals. And it's it's just a beautiful illustration of coming out of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, like most people, Andy went into that job just wide-eyed and naive, but not, not in a, a bad sense, but just totally unsuspecting, like we don't walk this world thinking we're going to meet Miranda Priestley's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so when we do, it's totally off-putting. And unless you already have the experience in the armor against them, yeah. golly, it, it's like a quicksand, you know? Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. going into a gun battle with a knife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not ready. <laughs> You're not prepared and yeah. not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love Miranda Priestly as an example of the antagonistic narcissist. What other character did you choose? So the other one, I just happened to sit down and watch the show and was watching season two, episode one and two of The White Lotus. Okay. That new season is out. And I was like, this guy, this guy, oh my gosh, he's truly an antagonistic narcissist. The character's name is Greg Hunt, and he is the guy that Jennifer Coolidge's character marries. And he's just kind of this scrawny guy. And she is a voluptuous multimillionaire lady. It's quite obvious that she is lonely and 
neurotic and in need of affection and love from someone. So she falls in love with him. And it's very obvious to the viewers that this guy does not have the same feelings toward her and is probably more attracted to her money. When he meets her in season one, he's real good at the love bombing and charms his way into her life. And she feels like it's authentic and everything he does, she just, oh, he cares about me so much. And it's very obvious that it is truly love bombing and not authentic. So in season two, and this is a spoiler alert, they get married. They are going to Sicily for a romantic vacation. And while she's traveling there, she's not able to reach him by text or phone call, which is, you know, red flags. And when she gets there with her little young assistant gal, he gets angry at her for bringing the assistant and tells her to get rid of her. And she brought this assistant all the way from America to Italy. So she has to go against her own values and tell the assistant, you need to get lost for this week. You can't be seen, which you can tell is painful for her to have to do. In this season, compared to last season where he was love bombing her, he's straight to the devalue stage. He ridicules her for eating all the macaroons. He ridicules her for drinking all the champagne and eating all her pasta at dinner. And he says to her, how in the world do you expect to lose weight if you were going to be eating like this? It's just rude and awful and ugly. When she comes to bed and expects to be amorous with him, he, you just see him rolling his eyes like he would rather be doing anything else but being intimate with his wife. It is so sad. And she just doesn't seem to fully realize it. She goes to some place in her mind, I guess. I guess you would call that denial. Just another spoiler is he's on the phone talking all secretively with somebody and she kind of catches him and he makes up a lie and says he's talking to a coworker. It's obvious he is talking to someone that he is in a relationship with because I think he even says, I love you. So anyway, that's only episode two of the new season and it will be interesting to see what happens. I just don't think it's going to bode well mm -hmm. the way the, the way this show goes. Mm hmm. The next type of narcissist we will discuss is the communal narcissist. Communal narcissists have a, a grandiose inflated perception of themselves within a communal environment, such as sports groups, hobby groups, church committees, support groups, political and volunteer organizations. They consider themselves vital and invaluable to the situation they are in. They feel they are the best to lead and if not lead, definitely do much of the talking, suggesting, and directing. They believe they have excellent social skills and that everyone views them as they view themselves. In actuality, many, if not all, view them as bullies and hypocritical. Social power and self-importance is a strong motivation for communal narcissists. Most of their focus centers on their own viewpoints and their own need for attention and validation. Signs of communal narcissism may include an extreme dedication to specific charities or causes. A communal narcissist will often talk about having a mission or a calling. They stir excess drama or conflict at charitable or work-related events. They often come across as a martyr. They believe they are the best at something, and they show great concern for societal needs in public. 
So from the outside, communal narcissists may appear humble and self-sacrificing, and those within the community may view them that way at first. But when the mask starts to slip, those inside the community can be scared out of their minds, but too afraid to quit or leave because of the narcissist's tendency toward rage or revenge and even more subtle tactics like using smear campaigns. There are some ways to deal with a communal narcissist, however, and so here are five of them. Number one, you should never confront a communal narcissist about their behavior. This can only backfire, turn into narcissistic rage. You'll probably experience some sort of gaslighting, if not emotional abuse, maybe even physical, being outcast, blackballed, whatever you want to call it, maybe even lose your job if it's a boss. Number two, stay true to your own values. And this really means, first of all, you have to know what your values are. Three, you'll want to limit your interactions with the communal narcissist. So figure out what really triggers them or activates them and try to avoid those situations at all costs. So along with limiting your interaction with them in cases where you have to interact, you really want to practice gray rocking, which we've talked about in a previous episode But this is where you just become a very neutral, very uninteresting, (laughs) very uninteresting, yes, person while interacting with them. Try to even practice some very neutral statements like, oh, that is interesting. Oh, yes, I see that. Oh, uh uh-huh. So you're not engaging as far as a give and take. You're just being a very vanilla kind of sounding board and try not to match whatever emotion they're pulling off. Try to remain very grounded and as uninteresting as a gray rock would be. That's where that term comes from. (laughs) Along with that, um, make sure to also practice implementing your boundaries. And so this will look different based on the type of person this is. If it's a boss or a church leader, you might handle it differently. But implementing boundaries, like I'm not going to talk about this anymore, or that's not something I'm willing to do, or this is not up for discussion. So practice some blanket statements that you can use to shut down the conversation or limit it, <laughs> limit the conversation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then finally, practice self-care. So that word self-care is, you know, thrown about a lot. And I know it could entail like adult coloring books or you know, a bubble bath or whatever. But when I talk to self-care, you know, with my friends or even my students, I really want to emphasize that self-care is proactive, not reactive. And so self-care should be ongoing. And yes, it can include mindfulness, finding positive support and affirming yourself often. But it's again, it's those those routines that help take care of your own self, like getting sleep, eating a well-rounded diet, being physically active, making sure that you're maintaining your friendships and your hobbies apart from other people, and then educating yourself. Really, if you're seeing some red flags or some warning signs, don't bury your head in the sand. Now that you know, you know, there's that saying, when you know better, you do better. So now that you know, now that you're seeing some things, so do something about it. Educate yourself. That really can embolden you and give yourself like a real sense of strength and power. And if you've been under the spell of any kind of narcissist for any length of time, by now you have probably acquiesced some aspect of your life 
to their way of living. You've given up your own likes and dislikes in favor of theirs. And so start small by deciding what you want to eat or drink or wear or read or watch or do, even what route you want to take if you're running errands. And it can be something as simple as, I'm thirsty right now. Do I want ice water or room temperature water? Or do I want coffee or tea? And no decision is too small. And so make the decision, but then talk to yourself. Practice that mindfulness and say, I'm choosing ice water because I prefer it more than room temperature water. Or I'm choosing to drive this way to a store instead of that way to the store because I like the scenery better. So each time you make a decision for yourself, I want you to claim it for yourself. I'm choosing this because of this. And the more you do it, the more empowered you'll feel. Because I know, especially with communal narcissists, there's a real loss of self-empowerment. And so any small thing you can do that doesn't raise a red flag for the narcissist, like, oh, this person is different. You don't want to buck the system or put your foot down. I mean, you would suffer. And so I'm not suggesting that. I'm just suggesting building your strength from the inside out. Tony, who did you pick as an example of a communal narcissist? That was tough for me and originally couldn't think of anybody. So then I was starting to think about some sports moms that I've been around and some maybe people in church settings. And I was like, come on, you've got to come up with something. So I've actually found somebody and it's going to seem like we only watch three shows, but I picked Angela Martin from The Office. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So she, okay. She can come across as pretty narcissistic across the board. And I would put her in the covert narcissist's basket. She's a narcissist. Her character is. As far as her being a communal narcissist, she is, if you watch the show, you know that the head of the party planning committee is quite a desired role to have and one that she covets and does not want to let go of. And it's pretty hilarious. So again, everybody deems that to be an important position and especially her. And she takes that role very seriously. Angela is not someone that I would say has really much of a sense of humor unless it's about a kitty cat. So yeah, she's, she's not, a, not a bunch of laughs. She displays complete martyrdom in this role. She frequently talks about how incompetent everyone else is in spite of the fact that she does need other people's help on the committee to make the parties happen. And parties are a very important thing in this TV show, The Office. They tend to have them quite frequently. Anyway, she doesn't hesitate to let everybody know about her displeasure with their ideas or their efforts in carrying out tasks that they decided on. And when I say decided on, usually she's the one that decides. And just two examples, Phyllis, who's one of the sweet characters on the show, she was in charge of just making this sign that said launch party. And when she got it printed, it said lunch party. And Angela just unloaded on her in front of everybody, completely humiliated and embarrassed Phyllis. It was very sad. Phyllis had even anticipated that Angela would be angry about this next party planning situation and had Googled how to deal with difficult people, you know, how to talk softly to them, just different strategies. And Angela absolutely disassembles all of her strategies. It was really sad for Phyllis, but it was a very good illustration of a communal narcissist because they know the best and no one else can match up to their expectations. 
Mm-hmm. And then another instance when this new gal came on the show and she was invited to be part of the party planning committee and she wasn't there for two minutes reading off her ideas that Angela said, no, 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 those are all terrible ideas and you're dismissed. And she just dismisses her and the gal has to leave all dejected and embarrassed. And no one else in the meeting spoke up because they fear Angela's wrath. Mm-hmm. How about you? What did you come up with? Well, like you, I had a really hard time finding an example in, you know, TV or movies or literature. So I came up with a real world example. And this has been in the news recently. His name is Keith Ranieri, and he was Mm. the founder of what's now known to be a cult called Nexium. And Nexium started as a business that promoted itself with a tagline that was working to make a better world. So it seemed to be like a very altruistic type of organization. It really targeted, come to find out, women. Mm. But they advertised self-improvement and personal development programs. And it just turned out to be very exploitive and manipulative and controlling and occult. They they even said that they cured Tourette syndrome. Yes. And, were you know, that was a huge machine mm-hmm. in Nexium that they were really going to develop. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is very altruistic because Tourette's is a very debilitating disorder to have. It's mm-hmm. just horrible for the people that are affected by it. And it was, you know, when you watch season one, episode one, they really go into how much this treatment helped people with Tourette's. And I was on board just watching that thinking, oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And in season two, they have some people who suffered with Tourette's on again. And the one main guy that they really seem to help, you know, he gives his interview without any stuttering whatsoever and seems to still be a believer in it. Even Mm -hmm. even after Keith Ranieri's conviction and imprisonment, he still believes in it. And, you know, I can see why if his life has been changed. But yeah. So within this cult-type atmosphere, the love bombing is very intense at the beginning, but it's also coupled with terror of, you know, if you don't abide by the certain rules and there's secrecy involved and there's this real sense of an inner circle and you get to be part of an inner circle. And so people who who are looking for that sense of belonging or a new change in life are really drawn to that. And there's a real feeling of acceptance. And you just really, there's a documentary right now on Hulu about this. And so you can just see in the documentary footage how these women in particular just feel a sense of belonging to the point that what's interesting about the Nexium saga is that the women within the group branch off to form two other groups. And each of those offshoots are even more intense to the point of they brand themselves as a sign of devotion to these two leaders. And it's just appalling. But at the same time, I watch it and I can think how if you're entering that program, the seeming innocuous program to improve your life or to find your purpose, find your path, right? Self-empowerment at a critical stage in your life and you're vulnerable, how easy it would be to get sucked into that and swept into that and and people are invested they invest thousands of dollars to attend these workshops mm-hmm. and so 
Yeah. So they're financially and emotionally invested. So that's a tie. And then another thing I wanted to mention about the communal narcissist is in Keith Ranieri's case, he collected what he called collateral on people. And this would be like confession for people, like tell us your deepest and darkest secrets. And the leadership was very open with what they were going to do with these secrets. And they would say, if you don't meet the standard, then we'll release one of your secrets. It won't be secret anymore. And so uh, the level of terror that these followers had and also punishment that would even be self-imposed. So they would get to design their own punishment for any sort of indiscretion. And it could be, you know, not eating all day or running a mile every day. And so all of their senses, right, were just full on activated through this cult. And just really, really, really sad, the power that this one individual had, and he created little leaders underneath him, and they all had the power as well. But when the leader, Keith Ranieri, felt slighted, goodness, he would just be so punishing. And if any of those little leaders he created underneath him showed any kind of dominance or stood up to him, he absolutely devalued them Mm -hmm. and would do it in front of, he'd do it on camera, he'd do it in Mm -hmm. front of other people. Mm -hmm. It was, gosh, so demoralizing. Mm -hmm. And most of those people that were a part of that were, yes, probably there to learn how to become better actors or business people. But the big message that they received was this is a communal group and everybody's happy and everybody works together and promotes each other. That's what they were sold at the beginning. And it really felt like that. But the deeper you got into it, then you started to see this is definitely run by this one guy and he has ultimate power and control over everybody. Mm-hmm. Nobody could bring ideas to him that he didn't have to reconsider and make sure that 100% it fell into the way he thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he'd put his stamp on it. Mm. Yeah. Reframe it a little bit. Then, gosh. Yeah. When people would bring ideas to him, he was very condescending to them Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. Can't quite let anybody else have the limelight. Mm -mm. Yeah. True communal narcissist. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Back at our types of narcissists, we are on our fifth and final type of maladaptive narcissist, and that is the malignant narcissist. So this list is going to sound very similar to the grandiose narcissist. However, they take it a step further, the malignant narcissist. And a malignant narcissist can be characterized by the following features. They lack empathy and remorse for others and are condescending toward others. They bully, demean, and intimidate others. While they seem like they have high self-esteem, they actually have fragile egos and are very prone to receiving narcissistic injury. They seek and thrive on constant attention, admiration, and affirmation, and are completely envious of others who overshadow them. They have an inflated sense of self-importance and are highly selfish and self-centered. They do not respect others' boundaries. They do not see that others have needs, opinions, or rights. If others dare to express opinions at the wrong moment or maybe ever, watch out. Their relationships with others are superficial and self-serving. They do not like others making decisions for them. They are envious of others and believe that others are envious of them. In fact, I almost think that they desire others to be envious of them. Mm. 
Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. They do not accept personal responsibility for mistakes, and they point the finger of blame for any misstep or mistake away from themselves. They take advantage of others, treat others unkindly and rudely, and feel no shame or guilt. They feel morally superior when they correct others or put others in their inferior place because only their way is the correct way. They believe they have intellectual superiority over others and even can overestimate their physical attractiveness and overestimate their abilities. They cannot say, I'm sorry. They live in a fantasy world of magical thinking because they have a distorted reality. They have a complete sense of entitlement and always expect to get favorable treatment and expect everyone to agree with them and comply with their demands and desires. Their ego is like a hungry animal and it must constantly be fed. A malignant narcissist is very similar to an abuser and hurting others, whether it be physical or emotional or psychological, does not affect them whatsoever. It's their right. They are self-entitled. And that's the big crossover from grandiose to malignant. Would you say, Lisa? Yes, exactly. So, Lisa, who did you choose as your character that exhibits malignant narcissism? I chose a character named Ryle Kincaid from Colleen Hoover's book, It Ends With Us. Ooh, we just read that book not too long ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I like this example because initially when... You hear Ryle's backstory of when he was younger. It's really quite sad. And it's easy to then make excuses for his behavior based on this really tragic event that happened in his childhood. And I think I think a lot of people want to show others grace and in doing so can really just be blindsided by narcissism. You know, so in an, you know, and I know. I find myself saying, well, I'm not perfect. And so how can I expect my partner to be perfect, you know, and then making excuses. And and I know Lily in the book, Lily had the best intentions. And once she heard about Ryle's tragic accident, you know, really wanted to help him through that. And I know I've said this before, but unless a narcissist is already working not even a narcissist necessarily, unless a person is already working on their past or working on growing as an individual by the time you meet them, we cannot be their savior. And there's nothing special about you or me in getting a person to change. And that's a hard pill to swallow, I think. But back to Ryle, just a little backstory. He's a neurosurgeon. He meets Lily on a rooftop for the very first time. And In that first meeting, he's very honest with her and saying he's not looking for a relationship, but he's also not shy in saying he's ready for just a hookup, just casual sex. And he really emphasizes zero interest in a relationship and all of that. And for Lily and for a lot of us, we hear those absolutes from people. And especially if it's something that opposes our values, we think, oh, well, I could get them to change their mind, you know? I could get him to see that dating isn't so bad or marriage isn't so bad, you know. And so I I think that's maybe where Lily was coming from at first. After the rooftop incident, they kind of part ways and don't see each other for a while. When they do meet again, there's a lot of chemistry, a lot of chemistry. And 
So that aspect of their relationship moves really quickly. It turns into physical abuse. It's been a while since I read it, but I, I think he slaps her. She's confused and obviously hurt. He does apologize profusely. And then at that time, I think is when he reveals his past and she begins to feel sorry for him. And she's torn because she too comes from a hard background. And so she kind of sees some similarities between Ryle and her own background. And again, excusing his behavior because she thinks, well, I had this background and I turned out okay. So maybe he'll be okay eventually. Because I can help him. Because I can help him. Mm. Yeah. So other than obviously hitting her, some other red flags for Lily were that in a restaurant, she sees this guy that she had known previously and the guy notices, I think at that time she had maybe a black eye. He notices that and starts to piece together, oh, this, this guy's abusing her. Ryle becomes insanely jealous, ends up attacking Atlas, this other guy, goes through her phone and just has a fit of rage that Atlas is even in her phone. So just some red flags. Again, she thought she could help him. And, you know, we're we're not God. And so people don't change unless they really want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's all I had in my notes about him. That's good. That's perfect. That's a great choice. One of the distinguishing characteristics about a malignant narcissist is the cruelty, you know, leading to physical. Most malignant narcissists are grandiose. Not all grandiose are malignant. And that is that is, I think, one of the delineating factors is the the cruelty that they can absolutely justify being physically abusive Mm -hmm. because they're self-entitled. So my choice was. Tony Soprano from The Sopranos. Yes. I think he's a quintessential malignant narcissist. Yes. he. It's such a great show. I know it's very violent and has a lot of sexual stuff that isn't for all, all our listeners. Probably very triggering for some. But it's a really good study on a very layered character. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like eight seasons. It's a lot of seasons. So you really get a good idea. You They really shape the character out. The writers are phenomenal for The Sopranos. It's just a brilliantly written show. And, you know, he's the center point, the centerpiece of the series. He's a mob boss in New Jersey. The writers from the get-go, even starting with episode one, really caused the viewers to feel sympathetic toward Tony. He has a panic attack and goes to a therapist. It just feels very real world, even though he's this very powerful mob boss. And then they'll show him in therapy with his therapist. And then the very next scene, he's ordering a hit on someone. He can just turn it on and off as far as exhibiting remorse and, you know, true human qualities to animalistic it's really interesting it's fascinating how he can just do that and and then he'll just go you know be eating dinner with his family right after right after the mob hit he has a great relationship with his crew members the guys that work for him i think they call him his crew and you know he'll he'll be having a great conversation with them and then in another scene he's just devaluing degrading them in front of each other for his own joy it's very it's very henry the eighth to me he also doesn't hesitate to put really anybody down or devalue anybody, including his own wife and children. And while he does seem to really value his family, he'll put his kids down. And with his wife, he cheats on her. 
he becomes physically abusive with her at some point. He curses at her. He speaks very cruelly toward her. And then in other times, like it'll be even two scenes later, they're fine. So they, they're in this very strange dance. To make it a level playing field in his mind, he knows that his wife loves expensive gifts and jewelry. And so he provides her with very lavish gifts throughout the whole course of the show. And in my opinion, I think this gives him a feeling of absolution from all the adultery that he commits against her throughout the whole show. He won't hesitate to have others maimed or killed. Doing so is just as routine to him as pumping gas in his car. He's not loyal to his friends and family when an opportunity to serve himself arises. If he wants what someone else has, he takes it because he feels he's entitled to it over everyone else. He's the boss, and that's just the way it is. Interestingly, Tony's own mother, I believe, is a malignant narcissist. She, his whole life, has been so cruel and punishing toward him. She doesn't hesitate to put him down in front of everybody else, including people who work for him. You know, kind of just cuts him off at the knees. She consistently attempts to devalue and negate any of his leadership qualities by letting him know that he's just not as good as he thinks he is or as good as his father was. This seems to be the impetus for his insecure feelings about himself, something he never gets over. And then throughout the entirety of the show, he sees a psychotherapist and she's this very you know, beautiful, attractive woman. And of course, Tony being the hot-blooded male that he is, he develops amorous feelings for her and becomes almost obsessed with trying to have sex with her, you know, trying to have an affair with her. And she, of course, remains professional throughout the entirety of the series. And when she never does welcome his advances, which he tries on multiple occasions, he gets very angry with her and ends up devaluing and discarding her like a typical narcissist does with everyone. It's fascinating. That is the perfect pick for a malignant narcissist. Good job. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The other one I had thought of was Michael Corleone, and he and Tony Soprano were so similar. Uh-huh. Mm. Very similar. I would want to add here that science and medical industry is so advanced nowadays, and there just seems to be some sort of therapy or, or even medicine, like a supplement or a pharmaceutical medication to help so many things. And sadly, narcissism just cannot be treated with any sort of medication. And oftentimes, narcissists do have a comorbid diagnosis of depression or anxiety, and those things can be treated, but narcissism cannot with medication. And all of that you said about Tony Soprano was, I love how you painted this picture of him of one minute hiring a, a hitman to kill someone. And then the very next scene, he's having dinner with his family. And that just goes to show or demonstrate a hallmark trait of an abusive man, which Lundy Bancroft highlights in all of his work. And that is they know what's right and wrong and they have the ability to choose their behavior. Yes. And that cannot be fixed with medication. Right. And that on one hand, I hope that can be freeing to people to know that. And on the other hand, it's just very tragic to know there's just, gosh, very little hope in, you know, having a relationship, a long lasting, fruitful, healthy, healthy relationship with these people. And it is it is a choice. What what they are doing is a choice. Mm -hmm. Yes, it truly is. And as you said, there's no medication that can help with that. Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe you can get medication for bipolar depression, etc. Mm -hmm. 
you know, because yeah. even going back to the beginning of our of this episode, when we were talking about the neural pathways that must be formed at early stages of development, it, those weren't formed. So you can't go reform those. I do know that there is research out there that cognitive behavioral therapy is what they're trying. And I think there's a, a few other types of therapy that they think can help. But again, as you've stressed over and over again, they don't come to therapy. They are not interested. They do not see that they need to correct anything about themselves. They're too vulnerable and broken inside to go to therapy. They're cutting themselves open if they go for mm -hmm. therapy. They go in front of a trained professional who will cause them to feel vulnerability and pour out their low self-esteem. It's just you're... Ugh, it's too it's painful for them. Yeah, it's too painful for them. Exactly. Yeah. I think there could be behavioral techniques, but again, it doesn't work if they won't get their rears in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right. So, you know, I think the Tony Sopranos of the world would never go. Or if they did, it would be to build themselves up, to hear their own selves talk, to have another source of supply. Yeah. It's just only the the lower end of the narcissistic spectrum can can really progress. Yeah. That was what was such an interesting thing about when the when the Sopranos came out is there's this, you know, big powerful mob boss that's going to a therapist, but it wasn't for his narcissism. It was for his panic attacks. Mm -hmm. You know, it was for a health condition and he was embarrassed. And it was actually so it kind of was to continue his puffed up position and how he's viewed by everybody is why he went to her was to continue remaining puffed up and propped up as as this mob boss. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can't have that if you're having panic attacks and fainting near your pool during your barbecues. Mm -hmm. That is an interesting split in his character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That self-awareness to know that he needs help, but yet the help is also building him back up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. But when the therapist would try to point out to him, you're doing most of this. You're the reason for your problems. He wanted it to be his mother's fault. You know, he wanted it to be other extraneous reasons that he was having issues. He could not turn the mirror and look at himself and see that he was narcissistic. And she even says in um, one, one episode, you know, you're not really addressing your narcissistic issues. He's just looks at her like she's nuts. Mm -hmm. Why would I do that? Wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. It really mm -hmm. is. It makes me want to go back and watch those. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does the season end? I haven't seen it. So does the season end or the, uh, the show itself, does it end like, are viewers satisfied with the ending? It's one of those black screen endings. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, without giving any spoilers away, I like everything wrapped up with a bow, but I can't think that you should expect to watch The Sopranos for eight seasons and expect a nice pretty bow yes. on it. But it was satisfying, I think. Okay. Yeah, I didn't hate it like some shows that end and you're like, well, what happened? Yeah. 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 You have a couple of ideas of what could have happened. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's just a, again, I can't I can't say it enough. It is just one of the best written shows out there, mm -hmm. you know, and you can it's it's been what, the early 2000s that that came out. It stands today. It is just as good today as it was then. It mm -hmm. really is a great show. You know, what's really symbolic about what did you call it? The black screen ending? Mm. 
is that even though we might close the door on certain relationships that are unhealthy or, mm. you know, and be able to walk away, we're, we're still affected by it. There really is no closure. Oh my gosh, that is brilliant. Right? So yes, the same is with the show. Like it's, it's <gasps> oh, that is so brilliant, Lisa. When you when you end a relationship with a toxic person, it's a black screen ending. Mm-hmm. And you have to make your own ending. Yeah. You have to provide your own closure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. My head just exploded. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, we still have the memories of the person. We still have the effects of the abuse or what have you. We still have to deal with those. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do need to figure out a way to write that last chapter for ourselves mm-hmm. so we can have some sort of peace moving forward. We need to tie our own bow on mm-hmm. it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we get to choose what color and how we tie it. We do. And we can even change it if we want to. Heck yeah. Change the bow to match the season. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I love that. Yeah. Well, I really had a fun time on today's episode discussing those five types of narcissism. And I hope that our audience gained something from that and can better arm themselves with this education. How about you, Lisa? I thought it was great. Very informative and also really fun to see which characters we each picked. That was I really know. fun. The big reveal. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Boy, we live life on the edge, don't we? We do, I tell you. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, so next week, we'd like to invite all our wonderful listeners back as we will have Dr. Carol McClellan Fields. The approach that she has developed is called the heart magnet, and she will walk us through that and address how it will be beneficial across all relationships, but especially how it can apply to toxic relationships. And she, just in a nutshell, is going to talk about getting in touch with what attracts you and what repels you which we think will be appealing to our listeners who are interested in finding mental health out of narcissistic relationships. So Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about that interview next week. Mm -hmm. I am too. Her theory or her exercise on the surface seems so simple, and it is, but it's such an aha moment once you can put down on paper what you're attracted to and repelled by and then make decisions based off of those. Mm. It's just life-changing. So I'm super excited. Super life-changing, yeah. super empowering. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited for us to bring this to our listeners. Mm-hmm. Again, we want to thank our listeners for joining us today on Here's, Here's Your, Your Red, Red Flag. Flag. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. I flew up to the mirror. Here's Your Red Flag was written, directed, and recorded by Tony and Lisa and edited by Tony. Our theme song is Butterfly Woke by Jairus. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Thanks, y'all.